We're in a real quick two-week sermon series, In Not Of, and last week I spoke of this idea that in the world, not of the world, means to be sent by Jesus into the world as his ambassadors for the kingdom of God, and to engage in the world in a way that does not reflect the patterns of this world, but to um, follow the ways of Jesus, not ways that are opposed to him. And in that way, we are not of the world. And today, we come to a passage in the book of Mark that I think um, covers one of the ways the world, one of the patterns of the world, one of the ways the world works that the way of Jesus is like the opposite of that. And so we come to the book of Mark chapter 10, and we've asked Ellen if she would read the scripture for us today. And so if you turn to the book of Mark chapter 10, verse 35, that's where she will begin. Thank you, Ellen. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request? He asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless the reading of God's word, and would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and our minds, and please use my words to that end. May what I say, the words that I say, be used by you, God, to show us what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. I lift these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what is it that James and John are asking for? What are they asking for? And why would they make this request? Why would they ask this now? James and John believe that Jesus is the true king of Israel. They believe that when they are in Jerusalem, remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem, and when they get there, they believe Jesus will be crowned king, king of the Jews. They believe that he will be coronated king of his people. 
So what they're asking for is to have seats of power in that administration. They want to be advisors. They want to be in the cabinet. They want to have some say in how God's kingdom gets administered on earth. So why? Why are they asking for this? And there's a clue, I think, right before this passage in verse 32. And if you still have your Bible open in front of you, you can read it. While Jesus was leading his followers in verse 32, those who followed Jesus, it says, were afraid. They were scared. James and John were scared. All the disciples were scared. They're making this journey to Jerusalem for Passover, and the followers of Jesus are afraid of what's going to happen when they get there. So let's imagine, let's imagine we're there with James and John and the disciples. What might it have been like if we were there? A few years before, we'd been going about our lives And then one day, Jesus shows up, calls us to follow him around the region of Galilee. And so we go. And for almost three years, we follow Jesus from town to town, and we see things we can't explain. Things that change us. Blind people given sight. Demons are vanquished. People who had been forgotten are given second chances in life, second chances with God and restored to the community. Word gets out about this Jesus and the group grows by hundreds and by thousands. Jesus has a following no one can ignore. People love him and yet everywhere we go, there are people who oppose him powerful people. Jesus is not upholding the proper religious traditions. Jesus isn't preaching about the correct social positions. And the religious elite are calling him names like drunkard, and they're calling him irresponsible for who it is that he entertains at parties, and they want to stop him But at every turn, Jesus confounds them, and Jesus keeps marching. Jesus goes toe-to-toe with some of the most powerful people in the country. And at first, following him is kind of fun, right? Stick it to the man and all that stuff. But then there are death, death threats and attempts at Jesus' life. And the last time we were in Jerusalem, we barely make it out alive. Everywhere we go, we witness those in power trying to put an end to Jesus' mission. And everywhere we go, we see the kingdom of God flowing through him, flowing through Jesus. So much so that when we travel with Jesus, we're always avoiding the big cities. We never go to the big cities like Sephoris, just over the hill from Nazareth. We never make our way to, say, Tiberias on the south edge of the Sea of Galilee. We only travel to small towns. And when we arrive there, the population quadruples. And what dawns on us one day as we travel from 
small town to small town with Jesus is that we are following God's Messiah. It's like the days of David all over again. He's right there. God's Messiah is right there. And the other thing that dawns on us is that following this man is getting dangerous. Jesus is starting to talk about going back to Jerusalem and coming into serious conflict with the authorities there. He's talking about the possibility of being arrested. The details seem hazy, but we're beginning to wonder if it's safe to go back to Jerusalem. And so here we are on the road to Jerusalem. It will be crowded with hundreds of thousands of people all cramming in town for Passover. Some people want Jesus dead. Others, probably most, others are willing to pull out a sword or a dagger and to fight with us. We're walking into a powder keg. We don't know what's going to happen and we're afraid. Let's imagine this. Imagine what it must be like for James and John. We're scared and then at some point along the way, Jesus pulls us aside and he says to all of us, we are going to Jerusalem and when we get there, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. And they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and three days later, he will rise. What exactly are we to make of this? Following Jesus to Jerusalem, this is a a lot more uncomfortable than maybe we first thought. Not exactly what we signed up for. Imagine that for a minute. And that's where James and John are. They're in this scary place. So they go and they do something we might do. James and John go to Jesus to secure their future. They go to the one person that they think can bring about security And they want to strike a deal. What James and John are asking for, it seems to me, is control. And isn't that a natural response when we're afraid? I don't know about you, but when I feel like chaos has hit my life or I'm gripped by fear, especially fear of the future, I tend to clean the house and do a bunch of yard work. Because if the chaos around me can't come under my authority, the lawn will. And that's what James and John want. They want some authority. They want some control. They want some say in how God's kingdom is going to work its way into this world. And the trouble is, the trouble is, when Jesus' followers operate out of a lens of fear, we can be blinded to the truths of God's kingdom and the way that God's kingdom works. This is so important for us to be aware of, brothers and sisters. Fear can blind us to the ways of Jesus. James and John, it seems, have yet to grasp what sort of Messiah they're dealing with here. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is not a Messiah who's going to use force, violence to control his enemies. No, he was going to die at their hands. 
And this is the foolishness of the cross that Paul writes about, this thing that is so difficult to come to terms with about the way of Jesus and what it means for Jesus' followers to be in the world but not of the world. The world operates on the premise that might is right. Or to put it another way, if you're right, if you're right, you got the truth behind you then you can use whatever means you need to. Might, nastiness, rudeness, you're on the side of truth. Say what you want. But this is how the world operates. Here's the good news, the gospel. Jesus is not of this world. He does not play by those rules, and we don't have to either. I've been to the Holy Land once in my life. I've been to Israel once. And during my time there, I was able to visit the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is the place where Jesus was arrested. You may remember that. It's, it's just outside the city of Jerusalem. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in the garden with the 11 uh, disciples. Judas had gone out to betray Jesus. And they were there for uh, a midnight prayer vigil. And when I was there, among the myriad of thoughts that came to my mind was the realization that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was not trapped. That night when Jesus brought his disciples to that garden, the place he would be arrested and bound, he was not trapped there. On the one hand, Jesus could have used force to establish a new regime. Right? He could have called down 12 legions of angels and knocked down guards with a breath. But he didn't even need to do that. In Jerusalem that weekend were hundreds of people, thousands maybe, who at a word would have pulled out swords and daggers and rallied to Jesus. They would have fought for him. They would have done what was necessary to establish Jesus as Israel's Messiah, even if it meant cutting down servant boys like Peter tried to do. People would use violence, and they maybe would have succeeded. And Jesus could have established a new, new regime if they would have used force. But what would that regime look? Um, what would that regime have stood for? Loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, turning the other cheek—not a chance. Brothers and sisters, what do we stand for? We're empowered by God's Spirit. All of us who call in the name of Jesus. What do we stand for in our marriages, in our parenting, in our friendships, in our speech, on our social media at work? What do we stand for, especially now? Jesus could have used force. He didn't. On the other hand, he could have retreated. He could have run away. And when I stood in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the, this is the one that really struck me. Because when you stand there, you can look into the valley, and you can see all the caves and all the hiding places, they would never have found him. 
Jesus could have taken his disciples up over the Mount of Olives through Bethany, down all the way to the Jordan. King David did this in a single night, a thousand years before, to flee from Absalom. He could have run away from all the trouble. They could have hid, set up a community in the wilderness, saying the Lord's Prayer three times a day, having Bible studies, waiting for God to do something. And they would have been perfectly safe. Nice and secure. And then completely ignore God's call on their lives. A call to justice and mercy and walking humbly with God. And Jesus didn't run and he didn't hide. When the chips were down, Jesus did not use force. Jesus did not run. Jesus stood and he gave up his life. This is what Jesus had always been doing. This is his way. He is a servant who's willing to suffer. He gave his life to others daily in the hopes that his followers would do the same. And so here we are, and here come James and John. Hey, Jesus, do us a favor. We'd like to have some power over people. Put us on your left, put us on your right when you come into your kingdom. And even here in this scene where James and John brashly proclaim that they can drink the same cup, that they can be baptized with the same baptism, that they too could be crucified for God's kingdom, after this brash proclamation, they could handle it. Jesus looks at them and he says, Yes, you will. Wow. And then, of course, you know, but whoever's on my right and my left, that's up to God, up to the Father. I know that sounds strange. This, this might sound strange, but I see here this incredible promise. Because by saying this to James and John, Jesus is saying to them, you will not always be driven by your fears or your lopsided need for future security or worrying about who's in power or who's not in power, you won't be driven by that stuff. You'll be driven by the Spirit of God. You'll be driven by the calling that God has on your life. A Spirit who will push you into places you never dreamed you could go. You won't always make decisions based on the fear of this world or the calamities it could bring or obsession with safety and security. The day is coming, James and John, when you will live your life the way that God's Messiah lived his, advocating for justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with God. And one day, you will be faithful disciples even to the end. I find hope there. We know how the story goes. The other disciples catch wind of this request. Uh, they get indignant. Uh, this mess breaks loose. They start squabbling about who's the greatest, who's going to be the biggest leader, the most important, who's going to be in charge. And they're arguing about who is next in line. And they, they, they just don't quite seem to understand what Jesus is about. So he gathers them together yet again. And Jesus says this, you know that those who are recognized as rulers 
rulers of the Gentiles, they lord power over people. Those in high positions use their authority to their own end over people. It's not this way with you. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must become the slave of everyone. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Discipleship 101, right there, in less than 100 words. If we have ever wondered what it means to follow Jesus in a nutshell, I think that's it. However much authority we have in our lives, however much leadership we have been given, however much sway we have in the lives of others, to that degree, we must be servants. The, the, the more leadership responsibility we have, the more service we should perform. Whoever is first is slave of all, Jesus said, for even Jesus the king was the servant of all. To be in the world, not of the world, means to be sent into the world by Jesus as his ambassadors, not operating by the tactics or the patterns of this world. Instead, we are to live by the way of Jesus, humility, justice, mercy, servanthood. It's not an easy call, right? But it is the way of our King Jesus. And he will never leave us, never forsake us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these times are just, they're trying times. So many things uh, can make us nervous or scared, anxious, um, or, or just unsure of what to do. And so I pray for your guidance and your direction. And that we would model for each other and model for those in our lives the ways of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. We pray these things in his name. Amen.